Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Jordan, and I'll be your host for today's program. Today, I am very pleased to introduce Dr. Derek Hook, who will be speaking to us about his book published just this year by Routledge, entitled Six Moments in Lacan, Communication and Identification in Psychology and Psychoanalysis. Derek Hook is both a scholar and practitioner of psychoanalysis, and he is currently an associate professor in psychology at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh and an extraordinary professor in psychology at the University of Pretoria. He has published a number of other books and articles on topics surrounding Lacan, postcolonial theory, and discourse analysis, including A Critical Psychology of the Postcolonial and Post-Apartheid Conditions. On a more personal note, I am particularly excited to be speaking with Derek today, as I was formerly his student in his previous post at Birkbeck College in the University of London, where he taught a master's level course on Lacanian psychoanalysis. That course really sparked my own interest in Lacan, and Derek's teaching became very influential in my subsequent PhD research. Uh, So I'm very glad Derek has published this book, as I think it gives readers a bit of the experience of taking one of Derek's classes on Lacan. So thanks so much for joining us today, Derek. Sure, Jordan. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Um, So could you just tell us very broadly, how did you become interested in the field of psychoanalysis and uh, in Lacanian psychoanalysis in particular? Um, Well, as part of my my graduate study, I spent a fair amount of time reading Freud uh, and being, I suppose, seduced by Freud and impressed and uh, a large part of that time was spent um, trying to, in a very detailed and slow way, go through the interpretation of dreams. So that that was a, the kind of underpinnings of things. And uh, then I noticed a few colleagues who were talking about Lacan. And um, one of the things which uh, captured me, so to speak, were, were, the, were the mathemes, the diagrams, the, the, the sense of the impossibility of understanding what some of these things were about. Um, and then early on, I remember thinking there was quite a lot of opposition on my part. What do you mean uh, unconscious is structured like a language? No, it can't be. Um, so, so both of those things played their part, um, the opposition, the interest, the impossibility, and, um, and also the, the links to Freud. And of course, the more I tried to, to make some progress with Lacan and, and failed and failed miserably, what I did start to realize was that sometimes the best way to do that was, was precisely to do it with Freud. Um, I suppose that's a very Lacanian thing to say, but in my experience, it was true. 
And um, that, in, in fact, continues to be one of the, 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 the joys of, of trying to work with Lacan is when you see these glimmers, these echoes, the, these fragments of the Freudian text, which he's clearly uh, engaged, digested and, and utilized in the theories that he puts forward. You kind of straddle both the clinical and the academic worlds of psychoanalysis. Is that right? Could you say a bit about how, how you do both of those things? Yes. Um, well, you know, within in the Lacanian world, and I think in the psychoanalytic world, you, you often get uh, a slight um, schism. Uh, there's many people who are very good at being uh, Lacanian or Freudian or psychoanalytic intellectuals who are able to use the theory, understand it, apply it, and, and do impressive things intellectually with it. But there's also um, often quite a strong, I don't know, prejudice or feeling that uh, you don't really, you don't really understand the material unless you're using it for the same reason that it was designed for, in other words, for clinical work. So primarily, I suppose, I was um, more of an, an intellectual, and that was the nature of my interest. But the more I moved into it, and the more I thought about training myself, the more it seemed to me useful to, to, try, and, um, to try and have an experiential sense of it. So today, I mean, I've, I've been through um, seven years of a training, um, and I still see uh, Anna Lausanne's where I work. It doesn't take up a huge amount of my daily week time. But I think it's been very informative because it, it, it helps me to respond to one of the things that students sometimes battle with. And students sometimes say, but Freud seems to have changed his ideas about something. And even more typically, but Lacan changes so much. And um, I think the experience of working clinically, one gets a sense of that it's difficult to be simply, one can be rigorous, but it's, it's, one is continually learning and having to adapt and change and challenge what you thought you knew. Mm. Um, so I think that's one of the assets. And then maybe just one further thing. Um, I, I enjoy and perhaps to a certain degree am adept in what you could call Lacanian social theory. But one of the things that the, that the clinic really forces upon you is, is really to make sure that you have some expertise in diagnostic categories. And so there's a lot of ways you can use um, Lacanian social theory to say a lot of things about a lot of things. But um, there's really something of a grounding that occurs when you have to use it in the clinic, particularly given those factors of diagnosis and uh, diagnostic structure. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I suppose we'll get to that a little bit later in the interview. You have a very interesting chapter on the master signifier and uh, what, how it's been appropriated so much in political theory and in other fields and what might be missing uh, in the clinical dimension or, or why a clinical di mm, aspect mm -hmm. might be useful. Um, well, two things. One is uh, some of the other things that I've published tend to veer towards the technical or they take on kind of academic jargon, and I suppose that's happened again in this book. But what I really wanted to do, as opposed to some of the other books that I've worked on in, in the last few years, was to try and make a document of my attempts at teaching Lacan over maybe 10 years. And that period of teaching Lacan involved uh, teaching at the London School of Economics, where a lot of students knew nothing about psychoanalysis or overtly antagonistic towards psychoanalysis. So I needed to find some way to kind of briefly bring them up to speed, but also to be able to convey to them something of the value of certain of these theories. So the book, in a way, tries to avoid being a basic introduction to, but still tries to write uh, and access Lacanian ideas in a way that one would be able to without having to go through a whole series of dogmatic Lacanian tropes and so on and so forth. 
so that's um that's how it came to be and i'm hoping it's slightly different to some of the other things i've um written and i've now forgotten your your second question uh, uh that you you kind of set it off uh in each chapter a bit uh lacanian theory versus oh yes 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 communication yeah yeah okay so um the other thing that i that confronted me um, particularly in, in conversation with someone like Bruce Fink, was that while it used to be the case that the predominant, um, the predominantly Lacanian theory was taught in literature departments, it does now seem to be the case that some people are trying to teach Lacan in a more clinical domain. It is certainly in, maybe a, only in small ways within the United Kingdom, Australia, uh, um, and the US. So what that means then is there's often, and many of my colleagues are in this situation of trying to teach Lacan within a psychology department. Now, I'm glad that's happening. But of course, on the other hand, one of the big learning experiences for me was that certainly as we move from middle to latter Lacan, virtually every theoretical contribution he makes, it feels as if it's uh, totally opposed to um, a more uh, general psychologistic mode of conceptualization. So posing a book that's going to do something with Lacan and psychology is both hugely problematic and controversial to many Lacanians who, perhaps quite rightly, say, well, psychology and psychoanalysis have nothing to do with one another. Um, but on the other hand, it seems to me an important way of trying to get people who are interested in broadly uh, articulated psychical, whatever, psychological issues to be able to approach Lacan precisely by differentiating it from what you might call the, the mainstream of psychological conceptualization. Mm -hmm. So you will have seen in the, in the first couple of pages in the book, I, I cite um, a few conversations between uh, Elizabeth Rudinesco and Alain Bedieu, amongst others, where they completely coruscate this idea that psychoanalysis should have anything to do with psychology. They, they think these two worlds are totally antithetical and have, must have nothing in common. Um, so I like that as a kind of dramatic opening to say, well, let's, let's be aware of how big the divide between psychology and, uh, and psychoanalysis can be. And in some ways, you could say the, the, the kind of pedagogical agenda in the book is to be able to say, you're a psychologist, you're interested in psychology, here's the idea, but bear in mind how very different it is and that it doesn't easily, if ever, potentially assimilate into um, more commonplace textbook psychology notions that we draw on in an everyday kind of way. Yeah, you certainly in the conclusion come to a quite radical kind of way of dividing psychoanalysis and psychology. You're focusing on the structuralist period of Lacan. Could you say a bit about wh what is this period? How do you understand it? And, and why do you think it's valuable to focus on it, especially given that uh, there's a lot of interest today among other periods of Lacan's work, particularly some of his late work? Yes, I, I have to say I find that material very exciting. Um, a lot more work that's dealing with later Lacan, particularly as we see um, the publication by Polity of some of the, the later seminars. The reason that I wanted to start there was just because it's crucial for a number of ways. One, um, to give a totally blunt and honest answer, is when I was involved in training, that was the period of Lacan we looked at a lot. Um, and I suppose one of the implications of that is that this is a period within Lacan that is particularly rich for a first step into thinking clinically with Lacanian ideas. So, so that's one, one answer. 
Um, the other reason that's important about that is because despite everything that I've just said about Lacan's antithetical and antagonistic relationship to psychology, the very early stuff in Lacan, where there's a focus on the imago, so on and so forth, there's also a borrowing from quite a number of different um, psychological theories. So there is, despite what I've just said, and, and this complicates matters, at the beginning of Lacan's work, um, much more of a borrowing and an influence of the psychological than the later Lacan would want to admit. So for me then, both for the reasons of how I've trained and the examples that I would try to use in class and to try and express something of how counterintuitive Lacan can be, that period of his work was a good starting point. Um, and also it was a nice place where it seems that Lacan really starts to do something very separate from I mean, he's, he's kind of always doing that, but it's, it's, it, it marks a place of um, fairly radic radical difference to any psychological notions that are coming in, particularly, of course, with their attention to the signifier, to language, to structures. So you say this is kind of a key thesis that, that occurs throughout the book, uh, the theme of um, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, the unconscious needs to be understood as structured like a language, as external, um, not understood as something that's kind of deep inside us. Um, and this is kind of right, something right. that you reiterate in various different ways throughout the book. Um, I think it's, uh, could you explain for the listeners kind of what, what this really means and, and what the importance of it is? Because it's a really tricky thing to kind of wrap your mind around. Yeah, I mean, this is also kind of answers one of your earlier questions, why I was so interested in, in Lacan, because there's a way of reading Lacan which, which makes him quite iconoclastic, at least in the sense of what a lot of people have in mind when they think about psychoanalytic ideas. So people with very little or even people with a considerable amount of a certain type of ego in ego psychology, psychoanalysis or watered down psychoanalysis have a whole bunch of ideas about, for example, what the unconscious is. What's so appealing to me about Lacan is he tears through this, um, this sort of cultural archive of accepted uh, doxa, common sense notions of what psychoanalysis is, and he completely upends them. So you quite rightly note that I emphasize this idea of an external or symbolic uh, um, unconscious a number of times. And it's precisely for that reason, because when one starts to teach psychoanalysis or when one starts to teach Lacanian psychoanalysis, people already have in mind something like a subconscious or a, a deeply personalized, idiosyncratic uh, well of drives and um, uh, demonic uh, impulses that are so much within the person that they're idiosyncratic beyond any kind of redemption of the social. So what the easiest way I think of trying to understand something about what Lacan has in mind with a, a distributed or external or symbolic unconscious is just to, to ask the question, where is the location of language? Now, when it comes to thinking about the location of the unconscious, you know, that sounds a bit puzzling. Well, it's inside. It must be inside because it's the individual. But if you think about language, language is not something that's simply possessed by an individual. By definition, language is a social entity. It's a symbolic entity. It's distributed. It's spread. And it's shared amongst a whole community of language speakers. So it's very difficult to say that it belongs to an individual. Of course, you can hear my voice, my accent, my mode of um, 
uh, articulation right now. So we could say that there is still something individual about how I utilize those signifiers, the grammar, so on and so forth, that are, you could say, socially owned. So the point of all this is to say that language is as much within society. Language is essentially distributed, symbolic, social, even though it, it enables uh, distinctive, singular articulations. The same, I think, holds of the unconscious. The unconscious is something which is distributed. It's, it's external. It's made up of and used, utilizes signifiers as its means of operation. So therefore, it's never simply singular. It's never simply owned, contained by one. It's not this uh, intrapsychic well of impulses. It is rather, um, and of course, that's also to say that it's not simply something like a collective unconscious, like Jung mm -hmm. might, might maintain. Rather, it's a, uh, it's a trans-subjective entity whereby you and I will share, we'll both draw on certain signifiers, we'll both draw on certain um, components, notions, and we will re-articulate them, perhaps in slightly different ways, but it, the unconscious is to be located indivisibly between the societal, the social, the symbolic domain in which it exists and the the articulating possibilities that any given single subject brings to it. You have this wonderful example um, of uh, the famous line from Bill Clinton, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, which you mm -hmm. use to kind of illustrate this idea. Could, could you say a bit about that example and, and its relevance for this concept? Okay, so this, um, this was a difficult Lacanian idea. And again, uh, or at least initially, it seemed to me a difficult Lacanian idea. And um, I remember going to a Jacqueline Rose lecture some years ago, and, and, and she, she tried to impress this point on us by using a very different example. So the, the commonplace notion is to say, what kind of thing is unconscious? Well, it's a psychological thing. Um, and of course, we could say the same thing about identity. What is identity? It's a psychological thing without necessarily knowing what we mean by that. But of course, in both cases for Lacan, what we're talking about is a, is a linguistic thing whether that's the unconscious or whether that's identity. So what that means then is that by speaking, by utilizing words, by engendering phrases and saying them in a certain way, I don't simply transmit to you the limited content of the message of what I'm actually saying. By the time I say something to you with a certain emphasis in a certain situation, I convey not just the bare limits, the bare content of the message, but also um, a field of other possibilities. In other words, to just take a very straightforward example, if uh, Clinton says, I did not sleep with that, uh, whatever he says, I, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Just because you've got an understanding of grammar, you're able to hear he's saying, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, which means presumably that you can understand and you hear as a potential possibility I did have sexual relations with that woman. In other words, one way of thinking about the unconscious is, again, linguistic, but as a whole series of permutations that are made possible by language. So in the example that I gave you, one can imagine in the back of one's mind, if you want to put it that way, or through by virtue of processing language, when Bill Clinton says, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, one can imagine a whole series of retorts you didn't have sexual relations with that woman, but with what woman did you have sexual relations with? Or, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Well, 
did that woman have sexual relations with you? So I'm kind of belaboring the point, but just by virtue of the grammar and mm. the linguistic structure that makes that sentence viable and understandable, given that we know that, that linguistic structure and grammar, that sentence brings along with it a whole series of, of contrary or different permutations. And that's one way of thinking about how the unconscious might be working in, this, in, the, in the very domain of, of exchanged speech. Those retorts sound like retorts that a Lacanian analyst might him or herself use. Well, that's kind of funny, isn't it? Because it, it means then that we have a nice example of how clinical praxis should follow on from the theory or be at least influenced by the theory because precisely those permutations made possible by language is what the analyst would be listening for and which they might use as a way of prompting um, some further discussion. So I think you're quite right, yeah. Mm. One thing, though, that I sometimes find confusing when thinking about the unconscious this way, I mean, it's a very good way of conceptualizing the sort of what you call it as the transubjective nature of the unconscious or the, the social dimension of the unconscious. But how then do we deal with the problem of individual subjects who repress particular things in their own unconscious or in the unconscious? I mean, how do we go from a statement that anyone says can have multiple meanings to a mm -hmm. statement that a particular subject mm -hmm. utters for that subject, particular things are unconscious. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the way I would try and deal with that is to say that, remember, in the same way that speech or language isn't owned and kind of hangs indivisibly between a community of people who can re-articulate it and a singular person who can give it a definitive inflection the way they speak. We're not saying that there's no such thing as individuals. And we're not saying that repression of certain elements of an individual's past psychical life don't happen. They, they will presumably be um, distinctive uh, repressive uh, strategies and distinctive lapses, um, absences of material for each and every one of us. So it's important to say that. Um, and uh, this is always where there's a bit of a crunch or a, a apparent contradiction between, like I'm drawing so much on structuralist ideas in the 50s, but his eventual also... Um, Maybe it's not so eventual, but his insistence also on the singularity of the subject, that they're not simply determined by language. But to answer your question, I think then we'd have these two things happening together. We'd have the necessarily social dimension of language, which would mean that the way I am heard by a given language community by far exceeds what I singularly had thought to try to express because language is always full of ambiguities and can be heard to have implications and connotations beyond those that I had consciously intended. Um, but it also means that the person who is speaking may be subject to the particular repressions, lapses, forgettings, gaps that distinguish and uh, qualify their, 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 the way the unconscious is operated within them. So let's let's move on to chapter one. Um, in the field of the other is the name of the chapter. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And in this chapter, um, you provide a lot of different definitions for uh, the big other. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in fact, I think this slightly reflects on the question I was asking you before because these different uh, definitions of them can sometimes seem a bit contradictory. There's the big other as a kind of 
existing transubjective thing that um, affect virtually or effectively exists, and then there's an individual's kind of relationship with their fantasy of the big other. So could you kind of walk us through some of these definitions that you provide in the chapter and, and tell us, like, why do they all belong under the same heading of the big other? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And I remember years ago that, that Dylan Evans' introductory dictionary on, on Lacanian psychoanalysis made the comment that this is perhaps the most complicated or difficult concept in Lacanian theory. And I thought, well, I don't know, man, I think I seem to get this one. There seem to be other far more difficult ones. But I suppose you could say in its own way, it's very overdetermined and it seems to mean many different things at many different periods in Lacan's work. Um, I mean, that's a challenge. It certainly makes teaching the material difficult. And it, and there does seem to be the same, incidentally, is true of the notion of jouissance. It seems to be utilized in a certain way at a certain period, and then it morphs into something slightly different and something different again. And then one is left with this frustration of saying, what's the core, um, what's the core component, the core idea here? Because sometimes we end up seeming to be saying two contradictory things with the same concept. So let me say to begin with, I think that is that is one of the challenges or difficulties of, of, of the whole terrain of Lacanian theory. And maybe it says something about the need to be careful about how those concepts are being used by Lacan to do certain work at certain times, so on and so forth. But let's, let's take a, a couple of stabs at it. Um, one, a very basic one, you would just say, if you and I are having a conversation, there's not simply two points in a dialogue, you and I, um, a, a speaker and a, um, a recipient message that's being sent between them. Um, rather, there must necessarily be a third anchoring component because if we've got a speaker and a recipient, surely they need to both be able to speak the same language. And of course, one of the things that's always so present in indeed omnipresent in Lacan, is this awareness that the language itself is not some kind of neutral medium, but it, it, it is something that is doing something. So first point then, um, and looking at some of the secondary literature, I like very much this idea that uh, the big other is the third in any dialogue. It's, the, it, it's that anchoring point which makes um, basic intersubjectivity or communication possible or impossible, as the case may be, because with Lacan, those things are both going to always be the same what makes language seem possible is also what you could say impedes the possibility of any uh, true full understanding. Anyway, so there's the first of our, our speculative definitions. It's the, the third in any dialogue. It is also a principle of appeal. So some of the other examples in the book that you will have seen, um, if one imagine, imagines a football game, uh, a soccer game, a fight uh, bursts out between some of the players. It's not like those players, when they're fully focused on winning the game, are going to be able to sort the fight out themselves. You need this, this principle of arbitration, this, this principle, this, this kind of law. So in addition to the idea of when there's any two, there's a third, uh, the third in any dialogue, we now add what you could say is something like a, a power differential or knowledge differential to that, and we have the idea that it is the big other represents a principle of arbitration. Um, it's an outside of an intersubjectivity shared by two soccer players that can um, essentially arbitrate, that, that holds some knowledge or some truth or the rules of the game, which is another way of thinking about it. So we've got those two. Um, we can also say that, um, and this will come up in the Nixon idea that you mentioned later, 
and it's it's what I use in some of the examples um, when I teach is uh, that the big other could be seen to incarnate or encapsulate the dimension of history per se. So the example, my favorite example, uh, which came from uh, a visit to uh, a London Museum where I saw a copy of the uh, column, Napoleon's column in Paris, is to ask this question, who are gravestones addressed to? Who are obituaries addressed to? And who are great uh, decorative uh, military uh, monuments? Who are they addressed to? So when I ask students, they go, well, you know, in the case of Napoleon's column, perhaps it was the people who survived and were part of that history. And the answer, I suppose, is yes. But then why is it still there? Um, in the case of tombstones, yeah, it's for that person's immediate family and those they knew him, the community, the place, anyone who lived near the graveyard. But again, it's still there. So there seems to be some kind of other which exceeds the everyday other of a uh, collected community. It seems to be an other which, which stands in excess of the here and now. So here that idea of the big other works nicely because that it, it's not just an appeal to intersubjective others, the people I knew, and it moves beyond also the anonymous others that might make up my whole community to, to a history, an appeal to history, appeal to the French people to come, for example. So there we have three. Um, Another thing to add to that is that there's always a transference effect to this other, this other supposed to know. So another silly example, um, my friend and I, we were having a debate. We hit a difficult word. Um, we don't understand what that word means in a text that we're looking at. He thinks it means one thing. I think it means another. We're about to have an argument. So what do we do? We consult a dictionary. Um, and sometimes you also get a version of this when people say, oh, you know what, they have now managed to turn uranium into gas or whatever. Scientists have done this. Scientists know. In both of those cases, there's an appeal to some kind of expertise, some kind of knowledge. And Lacan nicely talks about this as the subject supposed to know, because sometimes that appeal to an authority isn't always totally successful. And maybe the authority doesn't necessarily know the answer themselves. But it's a nice way of, of, of um, illustrating something about um, human in subjectivity and intersubjectivity that is often this appeal and this transference effect to someone who knows. So drawing that a little bit further, it would then seem to be the case that those social figures and historical figures who, however, momentarily come to occupy a position of great power or a position of envious desire, you know, kings, queens, whatever, presidents, it, it also follows that there would be a transference effect to them. In other words, they would engender a certain amount of, of affects. Um, other than that, uh, I'm trying to think of what other one ways I've used. Well, let, let me stop there. Um, I'm sure in your questions and as we move on, we'll think of some other ways of defining it. Oh, oh I suppose the other one is just that from time to time, uh, Lacan both wants to emphasize the, the alterity of this other, that it's not something that one can one-to-one -one identify with. It's not, it would be akin to, it's not, it's not akin to the imaginary axis of identification where two uh, Catholics or two soldiers in the same unit dress similarly, speak similarly and identify with one another um, and kind of look the same and take on the same visual uh, um, um, elements. Uh, 
it's more like the thing that grounds that. So if I was a good Catholic, I might look like my other Catholics who dressed in a certain way, but I don't try to imitate God. Or going back to the Freud example, I may uh, I, I may be a good soldier and I may dress like my um, the soldiers around me, but I don't. I may imitate them, but I don't start to imitate the general. That would mm. that would look silly. So that's a higher order level of symbolic identification, but that also is one way to point to some part of the operation of the big other, which is simply to say that the big other is outside everyday psychological imaginary identifications. It's one step removed from that. Mm. And yeah, and you have a kind of clinical point about the subject needing a certain kind of the the correct kind of distance between himself and the big other, in the sense of. Um, uh, if the big other knows too much uh, about me, then that is a kind of persecutory, overwhelming big other. But uh, if the other is too opaque, is is too strange, is completely foreign to me, that also can be very destabilizing in a slightly different way. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those nice moments where what can sound like a, a slightly abstract, and in the way I've put it, almost a, I don't know, sociological idea or something, Um has direct clinical consequences and is actually very useful. So, I mean, one of the first questions one could ask about any uh, analyzand that one speaks with is, well, to whom are they speaking? Who are they trying to impress? Or why are they afraid of something? Or what counts as knowledge for them? Who's the person to impress? Who's the person that's push over doing some, uh, oppressing them in some way? In other words, to try and get a rudimentary sense of where and what the big other might be um, in their everyday life. Mm. Um, so let's pick up on that Nixon bit. Um, you have in the next chapter, uh, Nixon's full speech, uh, you discuss Lacan's concept of full speech and empty speech, and you mm -hmm. do it um, with reference to this famous uh, interview between the British journalist David Frost and Nixon um, regarding the Watergate scandal. So the interview takes mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. um, long, uh, I think a few years after Nixon has resigned, and you say Nixon is using this interview as an opportunity to try and rebuild his political career. Um, and he's kind of using the interviewer as a prop to do that. Um, and he's really not coming anywhere close to taking responsibility for Watergate until suddenly there's this kind of remarkable turn of events in which he makes this very striking confession of his guilt. Um, mm -hmm. So I've got here, uh, I was able to cut a clip of the apology that Nixon gives, uh, which I thought would be nice uh, for the listeners to hear. Um, so why don't we play that first, and then we can discuss a bit how you use uh, that, that clip. So it's about three minutes long. How do I feel about the American people? I mean, uh, how about, uh, whether I should have resigned earlier, or what I should say to them now. Well, that forces me to rationalize now and give you a carefully prepared and cropped statement. I didn't expect this question, frankly, though, so I'm not going to give you that. But I can tell you this. Not did I. I can tell you this. I think I said it all in one of those moments that, that you're not thinking. Sometimes you say the things that are really in your heart. When you're thinking in advance, then you say things that, you know, are tailored to the audience. I had a lot of difficult meetings those last days before I resigned. And, and the most difficult one, and, and the only one where 
I have broken the tears. I met with all of my key supporters just a half hour before going on television. At the very end, after saying, well, thank you for all your support during these tough years, and I just, well, I must say, I sort of cracked up, started to cry, pushed my chair back, and then I blurted it out. And I said, I'm sorry. I just hope I haven't left you, let you down. Well, when I said, I just hope I haven't let you down, that said it all. I had. I let down my friends. I let down the country. I let down our system of government, dreams of all those young people that ought to get into government but will think it's all too corrupt and the rest. Yep, I, I, I let the American people down. And I have to carry that burden with me for the rest of my life. My political life is over. I will never yet, never again, have an opportunity to serve in any official position. Maybe I can give a little advice from time to time. And so I can only say that in answer to your question, that while technically I did not commit a crime, an impeachable offense, these are legalisms. As far as the handling of this matter was concerned, it was so botched up. I made so many bad judgments. So you really um, make a lot of this speech, and you find it kind of very valuable psychoanalytically. Uh, so could you just tell us um, a bit of what, what, what use you make of, of this speech? Sure. Um, I suppose there's some provisos to begin with. Um, you know, I've now used that material with quite a few students and listened to what people have had to say. Uh, yeah, I, you know, you could say that even what he does do is still cynically uh, motivated um, rather than some kind of direct confession. But I suppose what I like about it is a number of things, which, which some of which are, are quite straightforward. The one is, if one starts to teach psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theory, it's, it's sometimes hard to impress upon students that if the subject is left to speak under certain conditions, their speech could take them beyond where they think they might go. And in a very elementary way, I think that's something that we see demonstrated in, in, in that example, that uh, left to speak long enough, even as competent uh, and consummate a political communicator, someone like Nixon, who presumably has spent his whole life uh, carefully crafting and designing what he should say and what he shouldn't say, can end up saying something despite himself, beyond himself, that might compromise him. So that was the one point. The second is that, there are stages in what he says where he, the power of his own words, or not necessarily the power, the fact of the certain assertions positions him slightly differently. So as opposed to a view where we think we're fully in charge of the words that come out of our mouths and that we can be quite good at lying or dissembling or they come out of our mouths and then 
you know, we use them to justify ourselves. Lacan takes very seriously the idea that there's a symbolic impact and potentially a certain kind of symbolic uh, commitment that comes out of speech in a certain place, in a certain time, which can then change you. So I was just looking at um, uh, the, the written version I have in the book of some of the words that he said. And um, he says something like, well, when I said that, when I said, I just hope I haven't let you down, that said it all I had. So there's a reflexiveness on what he has already said. And by the time he reflects on what he said, that in turn has an effect upon him. So contrary to a more psychological what mode of thinking, which would say, oh, he was feeling guilty all along and he, he finally had to find a way where this, this guilt would come out. You could argue in more Lacanian terms that to get him to speak about certain things, to get him to hear the words that he is saying, which although he is saying them, they also seem to be said somehow a little bit by someone beyond him because they don't seem to be totally in his control. The more he says those words, the more they can impact upon him in a way that can itself result in a certain change. So that that's that's a second part of why why I like them. Um, the the comments, um, and I suppose also I like the idea that those words seem to have only been able to come out of a certain kind of context. Even if we're very cynical and we say that we he practiced something of those words, which I don't really believe, there's a certain context. And it, as I note in the book, it seems that it, those revelations, which only come in the fourth, maybe even the fifth days of interview, interviews with, with David Frost, up until which Nixon has been completely in control, um, a certain series of symbolic factors are, are present when he ends up saying what he does. Number one is you could say that just for a moment, the big other is present. What do I mean by that? Well, Frost asks him to uh, account for what does, what, do he, what does he think of the American people? And suddenly that historical question, i.e., how will the American people see you? How will you be remembered? Seems to slightly shift something in the room. Um, and there's also a sense, I think, with the cameras, the whole entourage of what's happening around him, that, um, that things have changed. And furthermore, it's at a time when Nixon has to confront a symbolic question. Um, what he had done, what are the bonds he has between the country, the people, the young people, the system of government? And that would also, in a Lacanian um, framework, be a point of potential precariousness, because those are the social bonds that seem to now have changed. And of course, I suppose the last part that I like about what he says is um, he, he goes on to make this declarative statement, uh, my political life is over. Um, and of course, by virtue of saying that, as the speech act theorists tell us, by virtue of saying that in a certain context to a certain kind of listener or audience, somehow that, that statement is true and it becomes binding it becomes true and it has a force. And it means again that by virtue of speaking, he has changed something about himself, about his relation. And indeed in this case, about something about American history per se. So in a, to answer more shortly, that's what I like about it. I don't even know if I necessarily believe everything about it, but it, it does seem to demonstrate a whole series of ways in which the use of words within a certain context can bring about a change on an individual. And that's precisely what uh, Lacan needs that type of theory, if he wants to be a psychoanalyst who believes that some kind of change is possible 
significant personal psychological change, psychic change by virtue of using signifiers. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it really helps illustrate um, what uh, the Lacanian conceptualization, how that differs from uh, thinking of this as a mere confession of some kind of guilt that he held deep down. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's, uh, just conscious of time, let's move into some of your work on identification. Um, you have a, uh, you have a very, uh, provocative, uh, subheading in one of your final chapters, uh, who's your daddy? Um, <laughs> yes, okay. and you say that as kind of crass and Freudian as it sounds, um, something about this phrase is a useful question to ask in terms of identification. Uh, so what, what do you mean by this? Uh, what do I mean by what? But who's your daddy thing? Yeah, but what, 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 what does that question, why is that question actually useful when, when thinking about someone's identifications, mass identifications in particular? Uh, okay, incidentally, I came across, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure about this who's your daddy thing, and I keep on asking people, who's your daddy? Uh, I know that doesn't sound like good research, but uh, it's always been a slightly evocative phrase for me, and I used it in a slightly humorous way. Um, although I've subsequently come across another one, who's your daddy kind of sounds like a more American movie centric kind of comment but i've also heard now uh, a kind of british thing or english thing where's your father um and again i don't quite know the meaning of that but the reason i um was interested in in experimenting a little bit with that was simply to say hey lacan's got this theory or had a theory about the name of the father the name of the father being this idea that there's some kind of paternal operator. There's a transmission of culture. There's a transmission of culture, laws, prohibitions that happens somewhere early on in one's life. Now, in the same way that Lacan tries to de-psychologize so much of um, those theories and those more psychological elements, even in Freudian theory, um, uh, for example, he doesn't want ego, id, superego to be these little entities. You could also say that what he tries to do is to desubstantialize um, a whole series of assumptions. So, by, uh, and so the father in Lacan is not simply the father, the figure of the father, but rather it's a kind of linguistic operation. So it's kind of an important point. But, you know, then the next point would be, well, people are saying, well, we're living now in a world where there is patriarchy, but it's not like it used to be. So surely this is not just about fathers and so on and so forth. And I suppose what I was playing at a little bit there was two things. One is to see to what extent some kind of paternal line of um, cultural transmission still does seem to exist certainly in patriarchal cultures where one has takes on the name of the father um, and keeps it, presumably, particularly if one's a son. Um, there's that. The idea that the father might be authority or the one who imposes discipline, all of that stuff. So I, I think at some level we wanted to keep that in mind. Um, but also just to say that maybe more importantly what's going on there, despite a whole series of changes we can imagine in the function of paternity, which may be weakened and which may be taken on by a woman as opposed to a man, all of those kinds of things. It's also just to stress that there are two facets of identification. So we really came close to them in, in the examples with uh, Freud's military example and so on. But um, I, one of the ways that I've heard this, uh, the example given quite nicely is by Slavoj Žižek. And he says, what's the function of a name or a nickname? So if you've got Speedy Gonzalez, which is a kind of changed example that I've used in the book, Speedy Gonzalez is giving a name and it's anchoring an identification, but in two very different ways. You've got Speedy, which is the likable image, the almost caricatured, 
uh, and indeed very uh, imaginary components, the, the nickname that you give to that guy. But then there's still Gonzalez, which is the, the more structural, the more symbolic, the, the, the family name. So this is a long way of answering your question, but part of my interest with those is the, the like who's your daddy and various other little often quite silly examples is to say that what it means to be a subject for Lacan is to be subject to two modes of identification. One is what you could call the imaginary or the seemingly more psychological one, like the speedy, the image that gives me a sense that my friends give me that I like or dislike, whatever. Uh, but then there's all, always the more structural underlying symbolic factor, which is often also, well, inevitably historical. And it's sometimes that identification which is more, more powerful and more grounding, despite that in an everyday sense, we would tend to focus more on, on the former. Um, so I don't want to go too far, but that's just one way of responding to your question. Yeah, what, um, one thought I had is that you you have, uh, speaking kind of in a larger sense about the book um, and its structuring, you have a number of these lovely moments uh, like Who's Your Daddy and the Bill Clinton bit where you could say a little bit of uh, jouissance or sexuality enters into the writing, um, mm -hmm, something mm -hmm. playful or provocative. Um, mm -hmm. But actually, the, the topic of sexuality itself in psychoanalysis um, is not a focus in the book. Yes. I mean, and it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly important topic within psychoanalysis. So I think you're quite right to, to note that it's not there. It's not there partly because of a strategic reason and also because what followed on from that book takes it in a much more um, uh, substantive, engages it in a much more substantive way. So um, this, the material that's followed on from the book really is, is a lot of work on, on jouissance and what does jouissance mean and the kind of um, uh, painful enjoyment, uh, libidinal enjoyment, which is characteristic of human beings generally, defining of them, and which, of course, is one way of thinking about the sexuality of human beings. Given that it's libidinal, that is sexuality. So you can't do away with that. And in the stuff that follows this book, I do, I do uh, discuss that in a number of different ways. But also, to come back to the strategic thing, one of the, um, the real difficulties in teaching undergrads today about psychoanalysis or for anyone who doesn't know much about psychoanalysis is, is that they come fully prepared with all the disclaimers and, well, psychoanalysis, it applied it for its time, but not anymore. Or, ah, oh, psychoanalysis, it's just sexually reductive. It's all about sex. And so um, I need to find ways of being able to, to try and teach the ideas without um, falling straight into what they're going to think of as the big problems about it. My general way of discussing, it's not in the book, I don't think, or might be, but um, my general way of discussing sexuality with, um, with the students is to say that um, a, a considerable part of the unconscious and Freud's unconscious wouldn't be Freud's unconscious unless a large part of that material was sexual. But it's also just to make the, 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 the observation that sex is in psychoanalysis and so pivotal to psychoanalysis, not simply because it's erotic or a little bit sexy or a little bit problematic, but also because, and maybe most fundamentally because, it's linked to trauma and it's linked to that which needs to be repressed. Um, and in some respects, you know, I, I'm tempted to say, don't think about uh, psychoanalysis is all about sex, but think about psychoanalysis is all about, well, libido, sex in its various diversified forms, but also uh, um, psychoanalysis is a way of dealing with what is difficult, with what is traumatic. And there we do make, I think, a bit of a Lacanian move in two ways, because 
the fact that everybody's got to deal with something that is unpalatable, that's difficult, that's painful, um, slightly shifts the terrain by thinking about, instead of thinking about the omnipresence of sex, um, but it also then takes us towards um, a diagnostic structure. And if I remember correctly, one of the, the nice moves one of Bruce Fink's books makes is when he wants to introduce the question of psychic structure, uh, neurosis, psychosis, perversion. He just makes the point that surely all human beings need to somehow have a way of negating that which is, which is difficult or painful. Indeed, that which is traumatic. Or, but again, all subjects have to find a way of dealing with this thing, sex, in its traumatic potential and otherwise. And the ways that they start making a headway in that, the way they either deny it, they disavow it, the way they repress it or foreclose it, will tell you something about the broader structure about human beings. So what I've tried to do there is both agree that sexuality of a sort is absolutely foundational to Freudian and Lacanian psychoanalysis, but also try to give it a form uh, and an articulation that sidesteps or, or challenges some of the, the routine uh, common sense refutations of Freud. Mm, thank you. Yeah, that's that's really clear. Um, so uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, it's about time to conclude. Uh, just as a final question, uh, what what projects are you working on at the moment? Well, um, it just came to me now in answering that question. I mean, I've got a, a book on the go, which is is, is something like uh, Lacan outside the clinic, which tries to 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 link more a series of Lacanian concepts to, to the work of a kind of psychosocial analysis. But I suppose the real answer is that I, I, I'm battling in the same way that I did in that book with the big other um, uh, notions of the signifier, so on and so forth. I'm now battling with, with jouissance, the notion of libidinal enjoyment. And the particular challenge there is sometimes people think, well, jouissance is, is, is Lacan's theory of affect. And maybe there's a drop of truth in that, but jouissance is both that which is outside the text, which is outside the parameters of seemingly speech and the signifier, but maybe not so much. And I suppose what I'm trying to get right is thinking how arrangements of jouissance can be can be ideological arrangements of passion, um, how they are fueled and structured and f given shape by fantasy, but also are still within the domain of the symbolic. And that sounds kind of counterintuitive because we like to believe this idea that affect and in some of the recent turn to affect there's this idea that the affect is somehow freeing and takes us out of the discursive. There may be some truth in that, but it, it's, it's also a fundamentally ideological agent and affect itself takes form and uh, substance, you could say, within symbolic terms themselves. So I suppose what I'm saying is I'm trying to get a sense of how to think affect as a Lacanian concept that links it both to the ideological, the symbolic, and the domain of jouissance, uh, passion, uh, bodily stimulation itself. That sounds really exciting. Uh, so thanks, Derek, so much for being with us today. Great, Jordan. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you.
Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.